Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Wednesday morning show for you today, including busy Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley. Should it be widened all the way to Chilliwack? Should electric vehicles have a special lane on the widened highway. That debate is raging in BC right now. I'll tell you all about it on the show today. Talk about the rental jungle out there. Rents going through the roof. Lots of people desperately trying to find a place they can afford to rent. $3,000 for a one bedroom in Vancouver. Four grand for a two bedroom. Are you kidding me? Who can afford this? Also on the show today, okay, how do we not talk about this story today? This is the insane raccoon attacks in Kitsilano. Two people and their dogs attacked by a gang of vicious raccoons in the neighborhood. This is wild. Neighbors suspect someone was feeding the raccoons. And that, that's why they were behaving this way. What are they feeding them? Steroids? What is going on? With these raccoons and kits here. Why would raccoons do a tag team attack on people like that? That is crazy. I'll tell you about that today. At first, though, we start with the Metro Vancouver housing crunch. Prices still unaffordable for many. What is the answer to this? Could it be densification? Okay. Build up to six homes on a single family lot. There's lots of talk about that in BC. Not a whole lot of action, though. I got Adil Danani standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to housing advocate Ian Cromwell here. Now, some people say, well, they don't like this density idea. What about Carmageddon? Can, do we have the infrastructure to densify in these neighborhoods? Here's what he has to say about it. Listen to this. I'm sure there are going to be some people who will who will only see the downsides to a, a denser and healthier city. But I think there are a lot of people who are going to welcome having more people when they walk down the street. Okay, so he says people will be happy with more people in these neighborhoods here. Lots of people say this is the answer. Densify. That's how we can make more affordable housing. Let's discuss now with my guest, Adil Danani from the Danani Group of Real Estate Advisors. Very pleased to welcome Adil back to the show. Adil, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Okay, Adil, first of all, You've got your finger on the pulse of this all every day. What is your analysis of this market right now in terms of like for people looking to buy buy a home in Metro Vancouver? What's it like out there right now? Yeah, it's certainly a challenging time. It's challenging both on like the ownership front and and also uh, tenants are trying to find um, trying to find rentals. Um, yeah, you know we've seen. 10 Bank of Canada rate increases in the last 18 months. It's put a lot of pressure on on buyers who are trying to get into the ownership market. They're often getting priced out of the market. And interestingly enough, uh, and surprisingly, um, those rate increases um, haven't really had that much of a negative impact on the real estate market. And, you know, we were expecting, there's always that inverse relationship between interest rates and prices, right? um, Historically, when interest rates rise, especially so dramatically in such a short time period, we would expect prices to come down more significantly. I mean, in most areas, we saw prices correct between 10 and 15 percent. And in those neighborhoods, like, you know, the COVID market, uh, those areas and neighborhoods that went disproportionately higher, like the suburbs, went disproportionately lower. But then we saw the spring market that came into effect, which really pushed prices a little bit higher again. So 
it's a very interesting time to be a homeowner and to try to be try to be getting into the market. Also, an inc- incredibly challenging time to be a renter. Renter with you know one bedrooms in the city of Vancouver, you know, breaching three thousand dollars a month. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to talk more about the rental market later on the show because I have talked to a lot of people and I'm talking like professionals, people who have good paying jobs, like they're making good money and they can't find an affordable place to rent in this city right now, even with a great job. So that is a, a big problem right now. Let's talk about the densification idea. And this has been kicked around for 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 the last few years like the answer here is we need to build more stuff right so let's densify so in a single family lot let's allow developers to build up to six homes in a single family lot there doesn't seem to be a lot of that going on there's a lot of talk about it but not not a lot of action on the ground is that your perception of it yeah so i i think we're in the early days of this discussion i i think the fact we're having the conversation and the fact that uh, you know premier eb and his Housing Minister uh, Ravi Kaloon um, are looking to overhaul the single-family home uh, across the province. Um, you know, they're talking about three to four units on a typical single-family lot, and up to four to six units if you're located within you know close proximity um, to transit. So the policy was proposed in April. We haven't seen much since then. Um, we are hopeful and optimistic that come this fall or at some point. Um, during 2023, we're going to see an overhaul um, of this policy. Um, Mike, if you if you look at the example, um, you know, one successful example is what they did in Auckland, uh, New Zealand in 2016. I think Auckland was the um, was one of the first cities to pioneer the movement towards finding that solution for the missing middle uh, housing. They approved townhomes, multiplex homes and low rise apartment buildings all on single family lots. And essentially, it, further to what you were saying, it's in an effort to, you know, curb um, rising house prices and, you know, out-of-control rents. Um, and the idea is flooding the market with more units, more inventory um, to both own or rent will bring down the cost of housing in the city, um, especially where middle-class families are being priced out and mm-hmm. often being forced out, right? There's that um, article that came out, I think it was a few days ago, talked about how in the last quarter, BC actually lost more people through interprovincial migration. Um, so it's something that's really at the forefront, and I'm hoping for a solution you know, fairly soon. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. I recommend the uh, article in the Vancouver Sun uh, by reporter Katie DeRosa, a really good reporter, and she talks about the efforts in, in Victoria to do this densification. And you've got a city council in there who says, they, they say they're all gung-ho on this. Yeah, let's densify. Let's allow these uh, six six homes on a single-family lot. And then she describes the efforts to actually try to do this on the ground in a, in a neighborhood that's currently single-family zoned and trying to put up a six-plex on, in a home. And all the roadblocks, the opposition... The local politicians who say one thing and then and then turn around and say no, we're not going to allow it. The red tape, you know, it just can't get done. Like, and I've talked to developers. I'm sure you have as well, saying they would love to do this. They'd love to get in here and develop some of these some of these lots, put more homes up yeah. for people, and they can't do it. Are you hearing that too? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the Victoria example is one we need to really look at carefully. They've adopted this multiplex policy. It's been four months, Mike. And they haven't yeah. received a single application um, for the multi-unit housing. So there are, there are obviously key preventative issues that are impacting the feasibility of these projects for developers. 
you know, at the end of the day, I think we have to look at it from the lens of who's going to be creating this product, who's going to be constructing this product. So when, you know, when, when the province is going to be rolling out the new, um, their new policies around these multiplex, um, around these multiplex uh, zonings or, or the densification um, of single family lots, they need to be mindful of the costs associated with construction in Victoria there seems to be a requirement, um, you know, like a six-meter setback from the front of the property line that's really putting more focus on the frontscape versus the backyard, which is what more families want, and also the exterior aesthetic um, of the structure, yeah. which is really impacting um, people's ability. I'll give you an example. So it's a six-meter setback in Victoria. Toronto, which recently approved their multiplex policy, has a one-and-a-half-meter setback, allowing for a much more functional layout and much more efficient use of that land space. That's very, that's very interesting. Speaking to a Dil Danani, Danani group of real estate advisors, here's the other thing that happens. You get some opposition from local mayors and councillors as well. Let me play a clip here for you and get your thoughts. So this is Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody, this idea of densifying in single-family neighbourhoods here, and he raises some concerns. Wait a second, do we have the infrastructure to handle all these new, new residents in these neighbourhoods? Here's what he has to say, then I'll get your thoughts. What may work in one location may well not work in another location. What about the other services that are involved? Police, fires, schools, the hospitals. We're going to have cars. Where are they going to park? Yeah, where are they going to park? All right, like I've heard this as well. This Carmageddon, that if you allow this densification, you'll have, you don't, you want to be, have anywhere to park your vehicle. Adil, is that a legit concern? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think there's going to, ha- within this policy, um, there's going to have to be municipal levers um, to control, you know, the rollout of the program, right? Um, it makes sense, Mike, to have more density um, around transit. Um, and, and you know, obviously there's been focus on high density and medium density. This is more the missing middle product that we're so, um, you know, um, deeply in need of. But I think the municipal councils, We'll have to have some sort of lever in terms of dictating where this product, where these, where this product gets developed. And I also think we need to accept the notion that, like, there's going to be tension with this rollout, and people have different perspectives about change, and it's often uncomfortable and difficult for local folks. You know, last time I was on the uh, on the show, we talked about you know the NIMBYism um, yes. that's taking place, right? But I think change is coming, and we're going to have to adopt. And I sorry, adapt to the change. Um, I think it's the only way we come up with a solution to the housing crisis that we're currently in. Adil, it's always great to get your analysis. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure uh, being on the show. All right, here we go now with busy Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley. Should it be widened all the way to Chilliwack? Electric vehicles, should they have a special lane on the widened highway? There's a debate about that in B.C. right now. When you take a look at that highway, of course, it's super busy, often congested. And when we're talking about widening it all the way to Chilliwack, local mayors, councillors, 
and business leaders in the Fraser Valley saying, look, we need this highway widened all the way out to Chilliwack. Right now, they're talking about widening it as far as Abbotsford. They want it to go all the way to Chilliwack with that widened highway. Local mayors saying that the, the highway is regularly clogged, congested. This is a critical connector for truck traffic in B.C. to keep goods moving through our province. Let's discuss now with my guest, Grant Gottgutru. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com. Grant, thank you for coming on. As always, thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Thank you, Grant. So do you ever you drive that highway much? Did you ever police any sections of that highway during your police career? Uh, when I was at Ursu. Uh, we did that stretch of the highway uh, when our office moved from New West to Langley. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, like most people that live in the – well, I used to live in the lower mainland, but uh, like most people that live there, uh, you have no choice but to travel the highway if you want to go east. And uh, you probably notice it's been getting steadily worse over the last few decades. Yeah. Um, I know there's – a the, <laughs> The the term that's used sometimes is they talk about urban sprawl. People are moving east. Well, the, believe you me, that's not by choice. That's because of cost. Um, when I was a, a kid, going to the Abbotsford Air Show seemed to be like I need a passport because the thought of driving, <laughs> the thought of driving from Port Moody to Abbotsford seemed outrageous. But now driving from the Lower Mainland to Abbotsford is is nothing because most people are moving east, obviously, for the cost. And with that, with that increase of population to the Fraser Valley comes increased traffic. And obviously Highway 1 being two lanes each way yeah. can't handle the increase in traffic. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good so, summary there for sure. And especially you take yeah. a look at Chilliwack, the, the last federal census had Chilliwack was the second fastest growing city in British Columbia. So yeah, there are a lot of people moving out there for sure. And it, it's a critical, critical commuter route. It's a critical route for truck traffic. So I think, you know, obviously there's a great case there to widen the highway as fast as possible and get those shovels in the ground out to Chilliwack as well. Now, Grant, let me ask you about the issue of the HOV lanes, because right now, the plan for widening the highway to Abbotsford includes, of course, HOV lane, okay, and continuing with the special EV access. So if you have an electric vehicle and you get a sticker, an EV sticker on the back of your vehicle, you can go into the HOV lane even if you're just a single person in the vehicle, so driver only. What do you think of that? What do you think of HOV lanes and, and the access for EVs in, in the HOV lanes? Well, the intent of the HOV lane when it first came out uh, was, I mean, what's the definition of HOV? High occupancy vehicle, right? Right. The whole, the whole intent was to uh, encourage people to carpool, to huh. decrease the amount of cars on the road, to decrease that uh, rush hour congestion. But, of course, in typical government fashion, they can't... Uh, legislate wording properly so all you have to have to travel in the hov lane is another person in the vehicle well the amount of times that i pulled someone over in the hov lane that had a toddler in the back well that toddler can't drive so that's not decreasing the amount of cars on the road if in order for the intent of the hov lane to be proper uh, it should be worded that at least one other person in the vehicle must possess a valid driver's license that way oh. the whole person 
of the HOV lane becomes valid because right now it's just a joke um, and it's not decreasing anything and, and giving electric vehicles a free ride in the HOV lane again um, defeats the intent of the high occupancy vehicle uh, lane. You have to, there has to be more than one person. And in my opinion, at least one person in that vehicle other than the driver needs to have a valid driver's license. Okay. That's an interesting take on it. And so when, when you, when you cited that example there, if you pull someone over and the additional passenger in the vehicle is like a toddler in a baby seat in the back, that, that counts though, right? Like if you have two, if it's two human beings in the vehicle, you, you can get into the HOV lane legally, right? Even if it is just a little kid in the back though, right? That's right. Yeah, it's legal. Yeah. You let them okay. If you talk to any police officer that 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 uh, works Highway One through Burnaby and and Coquitlam, they'll tell you the amount of times they've pulled people over where they've thought it's only one person. They look in the back seat and there's, you know, there's a, a baby. Then it's like, okay, well that's yeah. a, a waste of police resources, obviously, because now you're just creating. Uh, an unnecessary traffic stop again because the legislation has been bastardized by you know the government by not wording it properly have you ever busted someone for driving in the hov lane just with a single driver no one else in the vehicle or 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 a mannequin in the passenger seat i've seen that happen too. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen so the mannequin the only, the only mannequins i ever dealt with were uh, upper management uh anyways <laughs> So, yes, I pulled. Uh, th th there's a confusion that people have. They look at the HOV lane in some capacities as a passing lane. In other words, they're traveling in the uh, in what we, we like to term the fast lane, which it's not the fast lane, obviously. And, and someone's dawdling in that lane. So they use the HOV lane to quickly pass them. Um, that's obviously uh, you can't be in. And, but there are a lot of people who just take the chance because, quite frankly, there's the chances of you getting stopped in the HOV lane, probably compared to the amount of times you actually use the HOV lane, is very small. And quite frankly, no one wants to sit in rush hour traffic, so they take the gamble. Anyone who travels on Highway 1 through uh, Burnaby and Coquitlam and even into Surrey can probably count as many times as they see people in the HOV lane by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking, speaking to Grant Gottke, true, we're talking about widening Highway 1 all the way to Chilliwack. It's set to call me on that, especially if you're a commuter on the, on that highway. Now, here's the other interesting thing. The idea of an electric vehicle having special access into the HOV lane. So that's the system in our province right now. If you have an EV, you have to get a special sticker from the province to, to put on the back of your electric vehicle. And then once you've got that sticker, you are good to go in, in the HOV lane, even if you're just one person in the vehicle. So if it's driver only, that's okay. As long as it's an electric vehicle, you can go in that HOV lane. Now have a listen to this. This is John Rustad. He is the leader of the BC Conservative Party. Yes, there is such a thing. There is a BC Conservative Party. And he says, look, we should end this for electric vehicles. That should not that should not be allowed. Electric vehicles having the special access to the HOV lane. Here's what he had to say, uh, Grant, then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. The privilege of being able to use a high occupancy vehicle lane um, for electric vehicles, I think that should come to an end too. High occupancy vehicle lane should be for high occupancy vehicle, regardless of the vehicle. But currently, our, our, what we have in the province is if you drive an electric vehicle, you don't have to have high occupancy. You're allowed to use an HOV lane. Yeah, so that's the way it works. And, and I thought he's made a, a pretty good argument. And part of the his 
what he argues is that EVs are becoming more and more popular, more and more people are buying them. So for that reason, you don't need this incentive. People will buy in, are buying EVs anyway, even if they don't have this HOV access lane. And by the way, a lot of these EVs are very, very expensive, and a lot of people cannot afford them. So if you're a high-income person, you can basically buy your way into the HOV lane by purchasing an electric vehicle. Do you think that's a legit complaint? Well, it's just, you know, again, it's the government trying to encourage people to to buy um, electric vehicles. So more and more incentives, you know, yeah. uh, more charging stations, which is fine. Obviously, you're going to have more EVs on the road. But uh, it's like, oh, buy an EV and you can use the HOV lane anytime you want. It's like, no, uh, that's 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 an abuse of the HOV lane legislation. And again, that's not what it was designed for. Yeah. Well, it's, it's and, certainly not HOV, is it? I mean, it's not high well, occupancy if it's just the driver. Well, exactly. And, yeah. and, you know, and it's just like, you know, we could talk ad nauseum about how poorly worded the electronic device uh, legislation is and how that's completely a, a disaster. And and certainly the HOV is, is another example of a legislative nightmare as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sure there are several police officers out there that enforce the laws uh, in HOVs that will completely agree with me and they're nodding their head right now. All right, lots of calls on Highway 1, widening it out to Chilliwack. Grant Gottkutrue is my guest. Right to your calls, Lori in Mission. Hi, Lori, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hope you guys are having a great morning. I think it totally needs to be widened all the way out to Chilliwack. People don't understand that now. People commute from Hope to Vancouver to go to work every day. And if you drive that strip of the highway from 232nd out on, it can be a nightmare. And where North Parallel and South Parallel Road are better alternatives for some of us to drive than actually getting onto the freeway because of how clogged it is with traffic. It's crazy. And they have a variable speed corridor out there as well. And quite often you hit that speed corridor and you're going from 100 down to 60. Yeah. Yeah. That was great points, Lori. Thank you very much for the call. The variable speed limits there, Grant, do you like that system? Uh, it, it creates actually worse congestion in my, really? from what I, if what I, from what I'm seeing going through it, right. It's like, it, it's traffic is automatically slow because of bottlenecks. Okay. That's fair enough. But the second you drop it down to 80 or 70, people are going to jump on their brakes and go down to 60. So it actually creates, um, a, a bigger problem because if, if, if variable speed limits were so viable, they would be all along Highway 1 from Vancouver right out to Chilliwack, but they're not, um, obviously. And part of the problem, I mean, the, the caller was completely correct, by the way. Yeah. And, and the government officials in, Ch- in Chilliwack and Abbotsford and Langley, they're ones who have the voice because they know about it. I don't want to hear, you know, it's like, the, do you think the mayor in Chilliwack had input? on an expansion of the B line out to UBC? No, of course not. So people that live in Vancouver um, don't know what it's like to travel out uh, if they just live in Vancouver and work in Vancouver. So yes, it needs to be widened. It should have been widened 30 years ago. It was certainly short-sighted. Um, yeah. but and that's what the, and that's what the mayors are saying. They're saying, by the way, let's get the shovels in the ground now because we don't want to wait. Absolutely, you know, we 100%. don't want to get decades, decades to widen this thing even more. Jack and Langley on the on the open line. Hi, Jack. Go ahead. Hey, morning. I just got a quick question. 
they put a contract out for the 232 widening two years ago. It was a total failure. They had to fire the contractor. Now that whole thing's two years behind again, and they're, you know, they just can't get it together out there. Hmm. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Thank you. I didn't know that. Um, appreciate you letting me know, though. Thank you for the call. Peter and Burnaby. Peter, go ahead. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. First of all, you know, we've got to stop with the EVMV thing. The idea of uh, carpool lane is to reduce emissions. That was the initial intent. So it should be renamed the ER lane. And the notion that you're using electric cars in that lane, you need to thin out the three lanes. You need to make it so that you've got flow. If you note, I listen to your station every day when I'm driving. The fact is that the accidents are happening right in that area. You need to spread the traffic out. So reducing so that fewer cars are in the carpool lane completely defeats the purpose. Okay, so you're saying you should still allow the EVs in the HOV lane? Mission reduction, not, I mean, it's a misnomer. The fact that I drive an electric car means that I'm contributing to bringing down emissions in the environment, which is the reason we carpool. Yeah, okay, that's a a good point. This is the rationale for it, is they want to encourage more people into EVs for climate change, primarily. The other thing I've heard, the other argument I've heard from people is, yeah, let them go in the HOV lane, because if I'm driving a gas-powered vehicle and I can't go in the HOV lane if I'm driving by myself, then get the EVs out of my way and let them go in the HOV lane, and then that reduces the traffic in my, in my lane. So there is a kind of a counter-argument to it, too. Peter and Burnaby. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Oh, Chris and Langley. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to echo the last guy. You seem to be really against these EVs and uh, HOVs. Uh, once a week you're talking about uh, trying to ban them. But exactly that. Uh, oh. It's supposed to be uh, to stop congestion, stop emissions. And uh, with the hottest records on, on uh, record-breaking temperatures uh, being broken every month, uh, with the fires we have, should we not incentivize uh, cleaner emissions? Yeah, no, I think you, you sum up the argument for it. What do you say to him, Grant? High occupancy vehicle means high occupancy, which means more than one person in the vehicle. So it's not the intent of HOV to put single vehicles in there, uh, except for motorcycles. Motorcycles are different because, you know, they get, they're exempted all over North America in HOV lanes. Um, I'm not going to mm. get into, uh, uh, you know, talking about climate debate and everything else like that. But if we go with the original intent of HOV, part of the problem out in the Valley as well, and I think most of your callers will agree with this, uh, from Langley to Chilliwack is there's a lot of commercial vehicles that decide that they want to plunk themselves in the left lane. Uh, and that creates quite a significant bottleneck as well when they're side by side another commercial vehicle. Uh, I think at some point the government will have to look at the same rules they have out in the Coquihalla where stay out of the left lane mm-hmm. for commercial yep. vehicles. No reason for them to be in it unless there's a traffic uh, hazard or there's go down to one lane because they contribute. I've traveled so many times. They contribute to so, so many of the bottlenecks out in the Valley, Fraser Valley, yep. because yep. they're, they're in the, they're in the left lane. They got no business being there. Period. Grant, thank you for your time today. My pleasure as always, Mike. Let's do an update now on a story we brought to you yesterday. That was that pit bull attack near Victoria. Now, this happened on Sunday. A pit bull got out of a backyard, attacked some dogs 
in a park. Now, we've seen some earlier pit bull attacks to a controversial breed of dog. And boy, we had a big reaction on the show yesterday to our discussion around whether pit bulls should be banned in British Columbia. Some other jurisdictions have banned them. Got Rebecca Bretter standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report here. This is Czech TV and their reporter, Jordan Cunningham. Sanish PD responded to Reynolds Park to report of a pit bull attacking another dog. Now, witnesses tell Czech News the dog escaped from a yard that borders the park and attacked a group of three dogs that were on leash with their owner. Now, bystanders did, uh, did manage to pry the pit bull off, but not before one of the leashed dogs suffered serious and life-threatening injuries. One of the witnesses tells Czech News the dog was rushed to Central Vet Clinic with serious wounds to its neck and legs. Okay, so one dog, at least one dog there seriously injured uh, by that pit bull near Victoria and Saanich there near Victoria. That happened on Sunday. Now, we discussed this on the show yesterday, and we had a ton of listener feedback on this segment yesterday. I spoke to Bill Thielman. He is an advocate for responsible dog ownership. He's a former Vancouver City Council candidate. He supports a pit bull breed ban. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday. Have a listen. They've been bred and uh, and trained for centuries to be pit dogs, like pit fights from back from the early days of of England and elsewhere. And so this whole the whole genetic structure of this dog is meant for fighting and for killing. Okay, let's get the other side of it now with my guest Rebecca Bretter. Rebecca is an animal rights lawyer. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for coming on today. Good morning. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. And I know you disagree with Bill, right? You don't believe there should be a ban? Absolutely not. There's so much misinformation out there. And my job as a lawyer is to look at facts, to look at objective facts, not to look at only what some advocacy groups are putting together in order to further their own agenda. I was looking at this report that you were talking about, and one of the major problems with quote-unquote, pit bull attack reports is that people often, including animal control officers, police officers, and, and those in the know, confuse pit bulls with other dogs. Pit bulls mm. look a lot like other dogs, like boxers, American bulldogs, Presa Canarios, bull terriers. I mean, the, the list goes on. And so if you look at how it was actually reported, it says how the police, uh, were given the information by people who were there reporting a pit bull attack. The number of times that, just in my own practice, where I get people who say that, oh, a pit bull attacked that dog. Well, when it actually comes down to it, you, you really only know if it was a pit bull when you look at the details of the investigation and to make sure that the person who's actually investigating had a look at the dog. And even at that, the only way, Pitbull by definition is, uh, is a mixed breed dog. And so the only way yeah. to even know if it was a Pitbull is to do DNA evidence. But that aside, Pitbulls, what Bill was saying yesterday about how uh, Pitbulls have been bred to fight, that is so wrong. Pitbulls actually started out as a breed to be a nanny dog in the UK. They're, they were bred to be family dogs. And yes, it's not to say that some a-holes out there haven't been breeding them to fight, but there are also many yeah. other dogs that have, breeds of dogs that have been used to fight as well. Now, what is so important for people to understand is that 
we have to look at the science. We have to look at objective data. And the data that Bill and other anti-pitbull advocates, where they get most of their data from, is from this website called dogsbite.org. That's put together yeah. by a mother whose, uh, whose daughter or, or, or child was attacked by what they said was a pitbull. And then they, they peruse the internet <laughs> for media reports that report pitbull attacks. They're not, it's not based on science, and not, it's not based on peer-reviewed literature. The information that I have in people who are anti-pitbull bans, we base our information on peer-reviewed science. What that means is that it, these are scientists and biologists who are not only respected, but who are knowledgeable in the fields of biology. There's a recent, there, there are a bunch of reports out there, peer-reviewed reports, I may add. The most recent one came out last year in 2022, where they studied about 18 thousand different breeds of dogs and what that study found and it was published in the nature magazine was that the breed is not predictive of behavior at all and part of that is because there's a lot of variation within a dog breed there are a lot of variations of, between different types of breeds so fundamentally when it comes down to it Breed is not indicative of behavior at all. Uh, it I've, it I've, just does nothing to, brand, to ban a breed because what you really need to be doing is to get to the crux of the problem. And the problem is not the breed. The mm -hmm. problem comes down to how these dogs are socialized, how mm -hmm. the people are with the dogs. And it's a combination. You could have a good you... dog with a, a bad person and the dog turns into a bad dog or vice right. versa. Rebecca, would you say that I spoke to a dog trainer once and she said sometimes she's asked, does your dog bite? And she said the answer to that question should always be yes, because she said yeah. any any dog can can bite. And I told the story yesterday. I've been bitten by dogs a couple of times. And once by the last most recent one was by a very small little terrier got me on the ankle. And one time yeah. I, my buddy's my buddy's dog bit me on the hand once when I was in my 20s. I was a beagle. And I, I had another <laughs> caller call in yesterday who said most the most common dog bites are from a, a golden retriever. I don't know what yeah, the source probably. is for that. But yeah. would you say would you say that's correct? Like, you know, any dog can bite. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Any dog can bite. And and really what we need to be focusing on is not the breed of dog. It makes no sense to do that because first of all, how do you even enforce that? Because like I said at the beginning, Pitbull by definition is a mixed breed dog unless you do DNA evidence, which the vast majority of time that doesn't get done. We need to be focusing on education, on responsible dog guardianship and ownership. And, and the welfare of animals, that's what we really need to be focusing on. There's a reason, just think of it this way, there's a reason why experts in the field like the SPCA and reputable animal behaviorists who are scientists do not advocate for pit bull bans. And on the contrary, they advocate to not have these bans because they're not enforceable. And there's a reason why cities like Vancouver, North Vancouver, Delta, Castlegar, Pit Meadows, New Westminster, White Rock, Coquitlam, and I'm just I'm naming those just from the top of mind. There's a reason why all of those municipalities reversed breed-specific legislation over the last 
decade and a half or so. It's because they do not work. They, it's expensive. There's, it's really hard to enforce. And instead, what some of these jurisdictions, including Vancouver, have done is that they've turned their animal control bylaws into a more responsible dog guardianship model. And that's okay. what they focus on. Okay. And, and that's, what, that's what needs to happen. Okay, we're going to fit a break in here, and then we'll take some calls on the other side. We got a ton of calls on this issue yesterday on both sides of it. Let me play one more clip here from from yesterday's show that kicked this whole whole debate off. Here is Bill Thielman yesterday he supports a ban on pit bulls, and, and here was his rationale or his call yesterday. Let's listen. We should have a ban on pit bulls because they're just the the most uh, obvious and uh, overwhelming breed that cause harm to to people, to children, to seniors, to dogs and cats and other pets. Right, lots of calls on that pit bull attack near Victoria. My guest is Rebecca Bretter. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Margaret in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Margaret, go ahead. Hi, uh, yes, I would I'd like to ask your guest one question. Sure. Has she ever seen a pit bull bite compared to a normal bite from another dog? Uh, uh, normal dogs will do puncture wounds. A pit bull takes actual piece of meat right out of a person. <laughs> Has Rebecca. she seen those bites? Yes, I, I'm so I'm so happy that you asked that question. Yes, I have. And the pit bull bites are can be just as as weak or just as strong as, as any other dog. There's actually very little published scientific literature that shows meaningful comparison of biting power between various breeds. However, the, the few literature pieces that do exist out there that, again, is based on peer-reviewed scientific data shows that breeds like German Shepherds and Rottweilers actually have a stronger force per square inch. So what does that mean? Does that mean we need to be banning German Shepherds and Rottweilers too? No, absolutely not. There's a myth out there that pit bull bites are the strongest out there or that their uh, jaws lock. That is so untrue. First of all, their, their jaws don't lock. Pitbull skulls share very similar, actually the same characteristics and general bone structure as other dogs. So in, to say that pitbull bites are the strongest out there is scientifically wrong. Okay, well, I'm just just as we're discussing it, Rebecca, I'm just Googling any kind of research on this. I'm looking at a, a story out of the United Kingdom where a, a researcher, an animal behaviorist named Sarah Jane White did a study on this and concluded that pit bull bite was uh, three, 200, up to 330 pounds per square inch, which she actually, she actually lists that number four on the list behind a Rottweiler and Ger- and she had German Shepherd at the top of the list. So I guess there has well, been some studies done. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. What's that? The last part? Well, there's been some studies done on it is what I'm saying. There, there have. Oh yeah. There, there yeah. definitely have. And like I say, there's actually, there's not much out there in terms of published scientific literature that that's been peer reviewed, yeah. but the okay. ones that I know of, and they're mainly from the mid two thousands to late, like around 2010-ish, from going from top of mind, they they actually show that there is very uh, that other breeds like German Shepherds and Rottweilers mm-hmm. actually have a stronger bite pressure. But again, that's kind of going off topic because what we really need to be focusing on is not the breed, because breed specific bands. What they end up doing 
is that they end up punishing good dog guardians. And it doesn't deal with the bad ones, the irresponsible ones, because it doesn't deal with the root of the problem. The people who have dogs like pit bulls who want to have a strong dog and have this image that they're trying to go for and treat their dogs poorly, if you ban pit bulls, those types of people are just going to turn to other dogs like Presa Canarios or other strong breeds and do the same thing to them. And it's a vicious circle. And that's why, and I'm glad to see that smart cities are becoming more progressive and taking the necessary steps to work towards a responsible dog guardianship model, like I said, which again includes education and, and and legislation that targets known risk factors and behavior. Back to the calls, Janice from Coquitlam. Hi, Janice, go ahead. Hi there. I have owned five German Shepherds and raised them all with my kids and grandkids, and we've never had a problem, ever. Two years ago, I received four bites and one dog attack because the little 10-pound Pomeranian ran out the back door of the house next door. Now, they're saying, my fault. I antagonized the dog over outside. No, it's not a bad dog. It's a bad dog owner. Thank you, Janice. I'm sure you would agree with that. Rebecca, go ahead. Yeah. Absolutely. I completely yeah. agree with that. And it's, and it's not always, I don't want to say that there aren't any bad dogs out there. Of course, that there mm. are, but yeah. it's not according to breed. And it, just like people, you'll have some good people, you'll have some irresponsible people, you'll have some bad people. The same thing with dogs. And it's really banning the breed. It just kills me to hear that because mm. it misses the entire point of, of legislating in a responsible way that targets irresponsible behavior squeeze in another call jasper on the line in new west hi jasper go ahead hey i just wanted to say uh breed banning is useless it's discriminatory and what the guy said yesterday about bite force there's absolutely bigger dogs than than pit bulls with bigger bite force like the lady said but also um there's lots of breeds that have been bred for fighting or killing or hunting especially like dogs bred to kill wolves or to hunt deer or to hunt foxes. And we're not banning them. So, Mm. yeah, I agree. It's just, it's useless to ban breeds. They should just be more closely monitoring how people look after their dogs. Jasper, thank you. Thank you for the call. Rebecca, we got 30 seconds left here if you want to make a final comment there. Absolutely. I completely agree. I just want to say I'm camping in Tofino right now, walking the beautiful beaches. And I was thinking about our interview this morning and I I saw so many different breeds of dogs, including some that look like pit bulls. I don't know if they were or not, but what I think what some of us would refer to as pit bulls, no problems at all. You have labs, you have pit bulls, you have chihuahuas, you know, any dog, a breed of dog could be good or bad. Rebecca, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.